It was about a year and a half ago during the winter time, and my family and I were sitting at one of Cedar Rapids' busiest intersections. We had a red light in front of us. The cars, 90 degrees to our right, had a green arrow. And we watched as that first car traversed the intersection. You know how turkey buzzards fly? Kind of not very good. That's how this car was driving. The car was being sort of generally guided across the intersection in this big looping turn. And we looked at the driver, and sure enough, she was face-planted into her cell phone, sending a text. Didn't say anything about it. We watched. Car number two. Same thing. Barely making the turn. Kind of generally swooping across the intersection. This time it was being driven by a man. He had a cell phone in one hand and a piece of paper in the other hand. How was he driving? Maybe his knees. I don't know. Third car. Same thing. Person sending a text, texting madly. Car barely moving across the intersection. And I turned and I looked at Amanda and I said, is anybody in this town actually driving? Is, is, is anybody watching the road? Now we were excited. Let's see what happens with the fourth, fourth car. We waited and here it came. And it was driven by one of you. Fantastic. It was Chris Schaefer. And here's the good news. Chris had one hand on the wheel, he had a second hand on the wheel, and his eyes were on the road. So, well done, Chris Schaefer. Well done, Faith Bible Church. Our faith in Cedar Rapids is restored because of Chris. I don't really know what to make of that story, except that you never know who is watching you, maybe. Uh, Actually, I do know what to make of that story. And it's simply the message that we are a very distracted people, are we not? This morning we're going to think a little bit about distraction in our lives, and we're going to help each other think about what our response to distraction says about where we put our trust. Are we truly trusting God to order our our lives, or does all of our fiddling around in the world of distractions indicate a self-dependence that needs to be confessed and made right before God? And then what has God done to help us? Your response to distraction shows where you put your trust. My response to distraction shows where I am putting my trust. We don't have far to look in the Old Testament. We'll talk about the New Testament next week. But we don't have far to look in the Old Testament to see people who are distracted. We could start with our first parents, Adam and Eve. They had everything in the garden. They had God. They had meaningful work. They they had each other. They had all of creation, and and yet uh, somebody slipped in. An intruder came in and got their attention. And what gets our attention gets us. 
of course. And they responded falsely to that distraction, and creation fell. Later on in Genesis, we look at Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Uh, He enjoyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he had the best of the land, and he used that opportunity to become distracted by the pleasures of these cities. And in the end, he lost everything. Or maybe Esau, he had the birthright and the blessing of the covenant family, but at the end, he became distracted and he swapped it all for a bowl of soup. We can go on. Jacob, also distracted. Moses, the nation in the wilderness. The nation under the judges. The judge, Samson. There's a story in distraction. Eli and his sons, remember those guys? King Saul. Even the great King David who became distracted and through his relationship with Bathsheba came about, arguably, in some ways, the greatest of Israel's kings, King Solomon. And it's with King Solomon that we are concerned this morning. And we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 11. And If you have your Bible here today, I'd encourage you to find it. 1 Kings 11 in the Old Testament there. Uh, after 2 Samuel, where Steve has been working with us in, in past weeks. And in order to understand this chapter, we need to understand the height from which Solomon fell. Uh, Solomon wasn't just any king. He was, in many respects, the greatest king of Israel. His kingdom saw prosperity that God had promised, and then it was all dashed away from him and his sons because of his response to distraction. Solomon received wisdom from God. Remember that? 1 Kings chapter 3, where God comes to him and he says, what do you want, Solomon? And he says, I want to be wise. God says, chapter 3, verse 12, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. That's pretty good. And God gave him practical wisdom so that the nation flourished under him. And they, they ruled everything from the Euphrates to the great river, and he built things. And then his, he, he began to encrypt his wisdom in books and literature, some of which we still have in the Bible. And everybody recognized how wise he was. And, and then we have this wonderful little verse in chapter 4, verse 20, that talked about how Solomon's subjects flourished under him, his wisdom. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. That's Abrahamic language there. They ate and drank and they were happy. That's the picture of the kingdom uh, under Solomon's wisdom. Solomon also served as a priest king. Uh, in ways that even his father David didn't. In fact, he prefigures Christ in this. Jesus is both our king and our great high priest. And, and remember what Solomon did. He, after he finished building this wonderful temple for himself, he built uh, a, a temple or a palace for himself. He built the temple for God, and then he moved the ark 
into the temple and the presence of the Lord filled the temple. And then Solomon stood up in front of the the, the people and he represented the people to God. Chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And that's where Solomon was, representing the people to God. And then we come to chapter 11. For the most part, a tragic chapter. Follow along, would you, as I read the first 13 verses of this chapter. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Malak, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your day, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. There are a couple of lessons for us in this passage. The first of them comes from the first eight verses of the chapter. My response to distraction shows my heart. My response to distraction shows my heart. And here we see that Solomon's desire to order his kingdom through his many wives was revealed in his heart response to distraction. Uh, The passage simply starts off by telling us that Solomon took foreign wives, the first two verses. Uh, In the ancient world, kings took wives, multiple wives, for two reasons. Uh, The first reason was to show their virility. In other words, their manliness. 
And I'm sure that Solomon's subjects in Israel didn't think that this was at all strange. All the kings around them did this. In fact, they were probably proud to live in a kingdom where their king commended a thousand wives. That was a a picture of the flourishing of their kingdom, at least in the eyes of the nations around them. A, A second reason that kings took multiple wives was to manage their political alliances and their material holdings. We're given a list here in verse 1. Notice where these wives come from. He took wives from Moab, from Ammon, from Edom. These were the kingdoms to the east of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10, we read about how David conquered these kingdoms. And now Solomon was marrying the women from these kingdoms, the kings and nobles of these of these nations, in order to, to manage his material holdings, in order to keep these kingdoms in check and within the power sphere of Israel. Also, there are Sidonites. This would, be the, would have been the land of Phoenicia, people to the northwest of Israel. And in chapter 5 of 1 Kings, we read that Israel, uh, under Solomon, began to trade with the Phoenicians. Now he's got to keep these alliances in check. Then there's the Hittites. These are the people to the northeast up towards Syria. And Solomon began trading with them in 1 Kings chapter 10. And so it it isn't that Solomon just liked girls. Uh, he, He probably did. But he's managing his politics. He's managing his material wealth through all of these many wives. The problem, of course, is that God said, don't do this. Don't multiply wives. Deuteronomy 17, even before Israel came into the land, God looked forward to the time when, when Israel would have a king. And he said, and he said, he, your king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. But there was an even more basic problem in that God had told the whole nation, don't intermarry with the pagans of the land. Deuteronomy 7, God had told them, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In verses 2, the latter part of verse 2 and and verse 3, we see that Solomon's distraction moved from the material world to the spiritual world. Uh, Here we're simply given a a list or a number. He had 700 wives and princesses. Uh, Princesses probably indicates that there was kind of a, a tiered hierarchy among Solomon's wives. The princesses were like the proper queens. And then he had other wives and then 300 concubines who were just kind of like his girlfriends. And they turned his heart away from God. What began as a kind of fiddling around in the material world became a spiritual problem for Solomon. 
And in the end, we see that there really is no distinction between the material on one side and the spiritual on the other side. God owns it all, and he wants to be Lord of all. Verses 4 through 8 are disturbing for me, because here we see in in verse 4 that Solomon's distracted heart condition was not at first realized. Notice how it starts. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. I don't think that Solomon was taking all these wives and getting distracted, and then suddenly one day his heart went cold toward God. I think we see way back to the beginning of his reign, perhaps even in the choosing of his first wife, who came from where? Egypt. She was the daughter of Pharaoh. I think we see a a desire to manage his own affairs apart from God. And in the end, these distractions became overwhelming for him. But the scary thing here is that for, for the better part of 40 years, which was the length of his reign, he probably served as a pretty good king and people watched him and said, ah, there's a man who's tight with God. And yet in Solomon's heart, he was growing cold toward God and his things. Verses 5 through 8 describe Solomon's dabbling in the world of idolatry as he assisted his wives in worshiping their gods and perhaps even joined them. And we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but the text does, so we'll mention a little bit about these gods. There's Ashtoreth, who's the goddess of fertility of the Sidonians. She's sometimes depicted holding uh, human heads, and she required the chastity of her worshipers. So the whole nation is defiled. There's Moloch, or Milcah, of the Ammonites, same god, false god system. Uh, This god, or those who organized his worship, required child sacrifice, which was punishable by death in Israel. And you'll sometimes see this god written either as Milcah or as Moloch. And the reason for the difference is that the Hebrew scribes considered his name to be just unspeakable. He was that kind of abomination. And so they would take the proper name Milcah, and they would take the Hebrew word Boshet with the O, long O and the short E, and they'd substitute the two vowels into the name Milcah, thus Malek. His name was unspeakable. Kamish of Moab, the fish god, probably the Moabite version of Baal. And so Solomon falls. You know, I don't think that any of us are going to have a thousand wives or a thousand husbands. That's a temptation uh, common to kings in the ancient world. But we all are going to be distracted, aren't we? And and there are certain distractions that are common uh, in our age. Uh, I am what's called a Gen Xer. Uh, I am from that small generation, born between 1964 and 1982. In front of me, and this would include many of you, those of you in your 50s and 60s, you have the Boomer generation, born after the World, uh, Second World War and 1964. After our small generation, you have the Millennials, born after 19. 19- 
82. Uh, our generation, the, the X generation, has the distinction of being the last generation of digital migrants. Okay? In other words, we had to learn to use computers. The millennials over here, you guys were born into the information age, but we had to learn to think about technology for the first time. In fact, I'm probably the last person in the Western world who brought a typewriter to college. I did. And everybody used it because we had an old professor who gave away assignments on these little slips of paper. And he'd give extra points for typewritten answers, and the slips didn't fit into the printers. And so everybody was always borrowing my typewriter. Uh, But after that class was done, it went on the curb, and I entered the information age uh, for real. Uh, Since then, information technology has gone from being tools in our lives to a complete mode of existence. I'm following with great interest the Apple Watch. Pretty interesting device. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, introduced it earlier this year with the words intimate and personal. Uh, Its apps are yet being developed, but one of them, a popular one, is going to create a digital body print that will measure your pulse and count your calories and then tell you what to eat and how much you need to exercise. I think it'll also measure your sleep, too. Uh, If you need insulin, it'll tell you when to take it, which is a fantastic application. But it's always with you. And there's nothing that says we can't embed this technology. So it just becomes a, a part of you. Futurists are telling us that probably by about the year 2050, there isn't going to be anybody left, practically anyway, who remembers what it's like to ever be offline. We are being absorbed into this world of information. Uh, David Wells is a Christian writer, quite old now, but he's been writing about technology and its uses for a long time. And he says this in a podcast I heard this week. There is no doubt that the pings and beeps of the Internet are highly distracting. But the real question is, what is this doing to us? What is it doing to our minds when we are living with this constant distraction? How do we live in this parallel universe? It's a universe that can take all the time we have So how do we share our time between the virtual universe and the real universe? What happens to us when we're in constant motion and addicted to to visual stimulation? And then I would add to these questions, what does it look like to respond to the particular distractions of the digital age in a way that shows that we're wholly devoted to God? Let's leave that question there for a minute. Well, we go back and finish the passage. We're looking at verses 9 through 13. And our second lesson here is that my response to distraction really matters. Solomon's desire to order his kingdom through his many wives was met with consequences for himself and for others. 
uh, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it again. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Solomon's two visitations by the Lord are referenced here. Chapter 3 is where Solomon received wisdom from God, and now God brings it up, right? But in chapter 9, Solomon was warned. God told him, Solomon, if you follow after my ways with your whole heart, uh, there will be a descendant of yours on the throne forever. But if you turn from me, the kingdom will be ripped from you. And now judgment has come in and Solomon has fallen. And there are consequences. Verse 11, the kingdom is going to be torn from you, Solomon. The Hebrew reads in a very strong statement, tearing I will tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And the rest of the book of Kings, including the passage right after this, begins to describe this the unraveling of Solomon's kingdom and the severing of the 12 tribes, how the northern tribes are dragged off to Assyria, never found again, and the southern tribes are dragged off to Babylon. Right? Solomon's failure to respond to distraction resulted for consequences, uh, not just for himself, but for other people. He gave up that intimacy all those years that he should have been spending with the Lord. He, he gave that up. And at the end, the kingdom was ripped from him. You know, it's a sobering passage, but there's also good news here as well. And the good news begins in verses 12 and 13. And in these verses, we see that Solomon's failed response to distraction was met with Grace. Do you see it here? It, there's a little trickle of hope in these verses that becomes, well, it bubbles up into a little brook. And then later in the Old Testament, it's going to widen into a, a broad river of grace. Verse 12, the Lord says, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And of course, God is referencing 2 Samuel 7.14, where God promised David, unconditionally, David, there's always going to be a descendant on the throne. And of course, he's looking forward to Christ. But here God references that promise that was made to Solomon's father. Not based on Solomon's merit, but based on the promise of God. And then verse 13, it begins to develop. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Okay, use your Bible knowledge here. Which tribe is going to be spared? Judah. Who comes from the tribe of Judah, ultimately? Think New Testament. Jesus Christ. Here, even in the, the midst of all this destruction and this, this, this judgment, there is grace. We are looking forward to Jesus Christ, who comes some years later. And we see here that Solomon's failed response to distraction resulted in a Savior, 
by God's grace. And then in the rest of the Old Testament, we, we begin to come across these passages that we recite to each other at Christmas time, like, like Isaiah 11, verse 10. This is what Isaiah says, In that day the root of Jesse, from Judah, right? Who shall, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus isn't going to be just the Savior of Israel. He's going to be the Savior of every tribe and nation. And in the the end, we see that the splendor of Solomon's reign and the happiness of his people becomes a picture of life under Christ for all those who will trust in Jesus and serve him with their whole hearts. And Jesus, we find in the New Testament, becomes the final son of David, who will not fail his people, but will respond to God with wholehearted devotion, winning salvation for all of us who trust in him. You know, as we come back into our world, our distractions have similarities and dissimilarities uh, with Solomon. Uh, One of the dissimilarities is that uh, Solomon was dealing with the, the... the commandments of God. God had said, don't take these wives for yourself because here's what's going to happen. And Solomon disobeyed. Uh, Also, Solomon was dealing with people here. One of his great failures was that he didn't properly represent God and Israel to his wives. Though, of course, if he had, he wouldn't have taken them, right? Well, we in the digital age... uh, one of the things that makes us like makes it hard for us in thinking about distraction is that our devices are really are usually morally neutral devices they're morally neutral technologies and so you know this device uh, it's a basic phone but let's suppose it were a smartphone especially you know it can be used as a great tool for doing God's work and discipling people, and taking in God's word. Uh, but it can also be used as a, a tragic device. It can be used as a, as a way for me to waste vast amounts of time and not care for relationships and not learn to think critically about God's world. Uh, Douglas Grotheis uh, has, uh, is a teacher at Denver Seminary, and he's written a book called The Soul in Cyberspace. Great name, huh? And he says this succinctly, uh, everything is a trade-off. He's talking about technology. Uh, A wise person will not shun technology, but will ask, what are the benefits? What do I lose? And what do I gain? And of course, we gain all kinds of things. Uh, This past Friday, we had one of our VBSers, uh, a little girl from the Congo, that our English ministry, uh, Anne and Sean Buckley in particular, have been working with. Uh, she ended up in the ER at Mercy, and then they took her down to Iowa City. And they didn't know what was wrong with her, and her mother, who speaks almost no English at all, uh, didn't know what was wrong with her, and she's down in Iowa City. She's scared. They've been in the U.S. maybe six weeks. And so uh, Amanda and I popped down to Iowa City, and Anne Buckley ended up going down for the afternoon. And a big part of this was helping to communicate between the doctors and the mom. And, and crazy thing, we, we used Google Translate. You ever heard of that? 
It's just, it's just an app for a smartphone, and, and Anne could speak basic English sentences into Google Translate. And crazy thing, it translated it into Swahili. And the mom got it. And that, that was just fantastic. Um, but, of course, there's a downside to all of this. The more we begin to fiddle around with this technology, uh, the more we are in danger of trusting it. Uh, the more we are in danger of becoming half-hearted. We lose some things. If we're always checking Facebook or email or Twitter or any of your other apps, it, it could be that we're attempting to order our worlds in a way that indicates that we're not content to trust God, or at least we haven't taken the time to do that. Our, our responses to material distractions could indicate a spiritual problem. You know, my response to distraction shows me where I put my trust in the end. I want you to do something this week. And if you, you're a parent with young kids, this is going to be tough. In fact, I don't know how you're going to do it. Uh, but work something out that is comparable. I'd like everybody to read a book this week. Just get, get an old, you know, with paper. Get, get an old-fashioned book and spend, see if you can't spend an hour reading this book. And, and just feel your mind begin to process the ideas one at a time. This is not mysticism, okay? This is what people used to feel when we read books more often. Read a book for an hour and then take a walk. And as you're walking, ask the Lord some questions. Some questions like this. How am I doing? Are my affections, that is my heart, being turned so that I'm trying to find my happiness in anything other than you? Do I need to limit my use of technology to put it in its proper place? You know, maybe you need to take your phone and shove it in a drawer for dinner. Or maybe you need to tell the people around you to hold you accountable and, uh, and to help you remember that the people in front of you are usually supposed to be more important than the people on your phone. So you're not fiddling while people are standing right in front of you. We need boundaries for technology. The third question is really for hard addicts. Uh, do I need to fast from my device? Uh, I know a pastor, he's a senior pastor, he has a large staff. Fridays, and I don't know how he does this, but Fridays are phone-free Fridays. That's what he calls them. So on Friday, if you work for him and you want him, you got to come to his office. All right? And you got to knock on the door, and then he'll give you actual FaceTime. Remember how we used to do that? When we really talked to people? You text him, he'll get back to you on Saturday. Right? Phone-free Fridays. For him, that's a drastic response. He loves technology, but that's a drastic response to what he realized was becoming very quickly an addiction. Uh, Eric and Jill leading the trip, uh, start leaving this afternoon. I was at their launch party. We got together in their backyard and burned a stump in his backyard. That was really something. And we just we prayed for that group that's going to the Twin Cities. And uh, Eric said something great. He said, he said, kids, your leaders are going to have their phones because they're organizing this trip. 
but you're not going to have your phones. You're going to leave them at home because you're all about the team of people around you. And you're going to be relating to this team in real time and in real space. And when you really meet people in the Twin Cities and you talk to them, you're going to really relate to them face to face in a primary way. Right? It's a great idea for a mission trip. And maybe we all need to fast or at least uh, create boundaries to manage these distractions so that we can take time to look at our hearts. In the end, your response to distraction shows you where you put your trust. We started the service with Psalm 46. I'd like to read it for us again. And then we're over time, so I'll pray for us, and uh, Brian and the team will, uh, will play us out of the building. Uh, Psalm 46, 10 and 11, Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus and the gospel, which is all about how we come to know you. And we are all in different times of history, subject to many distractions. And our danger, as we've seen today, is that our hearts would be turned, maybe slowly, maybe imperceptibly, uh, and that and we would be turned as we become busy in managing our lives. And we confess that that is our temptation. We ask that you'd slow us down. We ask that you'd help us. We ask that uh, you would help us to take time to speak with you and ask if we are truly setting our hearts on you. Uh, Would you do that by your grace? May this week be a sweet week where we uh, focus on on you and uh, use technology and other distractions in our lives to accomplish your purpose as these areas of our lives are redeemed uh, for your kingdom. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.